So a survey came out last month, and my guess is you are not going to be surprised by any of the results of this survey. So they asked Americans uh, how they felt about things going on in their life, and in this survey, 77% of us said we are anxious about our financial situation. 77% of us are anxious. 58% of us feel that finances control our lives. And 52% of us have difficulty controlling money-related anxiety that we're feeling. Now, the question is, does any of that shock you? Like maybe that the numbers aren't higher, right? What this stat says is that most of us are feeling anxiety in and around our finances, But here's the really weird thing. We live in the wealthiest society in the history of the world. In fact, right now, there is no country in the world that is even close to the wealth that we have in America. Here's a graphic I I found. Um, This is percentage of wealth by country as of 2019. And it says the United States holds 29.93% of the entire world's wealth. And here's the crazy thing. This was three years ago. Now that number is 38%. In the last three years, the United States has had a 9% bump, a 9% jump in the percentage of the wealth that we hold. And I know what you're probably thinking. You're thinking, well, that would be nice. Because I certainly don't hold $105.99 trillion in my bank account, right? But what they did is they actually went ahead and did another study where they adjusted to things like um, um, welfare and housing assistance and things like that. And even considering that, the 20% of people that are the poorest in the United States are still consuming more goods and services than every other country on average. One study said if the U.S. poor were a nation, we would be one of the richest nations. And yet, 77% of us are anxious about our financial situation. 58% of us really think that finances control our lives, and 52% of us just can't stop controlling that anxiety. And I want to make sure you hear me today. I am not downplaying any of those anxieties. Any of those worries, they're very, very real. And the people who struggle and are in our society are poor, are really poor uh, in relative to the rest of our society. But here is the truth. It doesn't matter where we live or when we live, there is a connection between money and stress. And I get that idea from a guy named Jesus, <laughs> We're in a series right now where we're looking at things that cause us to stumble inside the church, in our lives, around the world. And today we're going to hit on the intersection of money and anxiety. And so if you have a Bible with you, you can flip, tap, or swipe your way over to Matthew 6. That's where we're going to be the majority of the time today. And let me give you a little bit of context of Matthew 6. 
We just got done with a series where we were working our way through uh, the book of Daniel. And one of the things we saw in Daniel is one of the predominant themes is the theme of kingdoms. And we learned that one day Jesus was going to come back and he will return to earth and he'll establish his kingdom. And the early chapters of Matthew, uh, they show us the historic account of how Jesus presented Israel with the kingdom and how they rejected it. He presented himself as king and they rejected him. And so when we read these early verses in Matthew, it gives us a couple, there's a couple important interpretive keys. The first is to remember that what Jesus is doing is he is painting a picture of what his future kingdom will be like. The second is he is inviting each one of us who follow him to live as citizens of that kingdom now and to, to represent him until that day when he brings the kingdom. In other words, there are critical ways that we can live differently right now to give the world a glimmer of hope. And I think right now with all the anxiety that people are feeling we have a wonderful opportunity to do this very thing. So let's look and see what Jesus has to say in Matthew, starting in verse 19. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so what Jesus does right here is he starts by speaking to those who have, relatively speaking, much. They're the people who have something that they could um, consider much or any kind of wealth or anything like that. And he basically says to them, you have a choice of where you're going to park that wealth. And at first, it seems like a really easy bargain. He's like, you got two choices. Option one. Um, this is where the moths are going to come in and eat all your clothes up and rust is going to rush your car away when thieves aren't busy stealing it or the other place totally safe. And at first glance, that feels very easy. We know which option we would take, but then he says that second option where things are safe, it is in the kingdom of heaven, which is kind of like, woo-woo, like, like how do I think about storing any sort of wealth in this like spiritual thing, this, this kingdom of heaven, Right. But the key to understanding this is in the next thing that Jesus says, which is actually the most popular part of this whole section, where he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, there's at least two ways we can misread this this little chunk, this famous little chunk, and the first comes from reading it too fast. You read that thing too fast, and you start to think that what Jesus is saying is what we love um, is, is going to become our treasure, right? So that's what we kind of read. If we love it, it's going to become our treasure. That's that's a misreading, and that's actually backward because Jesus doesn't say what you love will become your treasure. He says what you treasure is where your heart will be. And that's the second misunderstanding, and that is what that word heart actually means. Because we tend to distill in our culture heart to mean just the emotional side of things, like love, right? So, so, but that's not what the Bible does. When the Bible talks about our heart, it is much broader than that. It is our personality and our intellect and our experience that all circle around the idea of our will. In other words, one of the best ways to read the word heart in your Bible is to replace it with decision-making, <laughs> Because your heart is your decision-making engine of your life. And so in order to kind of get our Western heads around that, let me reread that verse and we'll insert that phrase and see how it reads different. 
For where your treasure is, there your decision-making will be also. Now that changes things a little bit, doesn't it? And it makes perfect sense. Imagine for a moment that this uh, two-thirds full jar of atomic fireballs is my greatest treasure, and it just might be. Okay? This sits on my desk. People have meetings with me. They get to grab atomic fireballs. That's how it works. So if this is my greatest treasure right here, then I'm going to make every decision in life based on this jar of atomic fireballs, right? So any, if you come in and you try to threaten my jar of atomic fireballs, you are going to be on my bad side, if not my full-out enemy, right? If you, you, you come in and, and not instead of threatening my, my jar of atomic fireballs, um, you, you seek to serve them and you adore them as much as I do, then you're going to become my friend, right? You'll get my undying support because you will love my atomic fireballs. Now, my guess is most of you do not have as your greatest treasure a two-thirds full jar of atomic fireballs. You probably have something else. For some of you, maybe, maybe it's your kids, And if your kids are the greatest treasure in your life, you will make all of your decisions based on what you perceive to be the best interest of your kids. Isn't that what this says? Where your treasure is, your decision-making will be also. Maybe your greatest treasure is your political beliefs. So then every decision that you make is going to be based on advancing your particular political agenda. For maybe, for you, it's, it's fame or, or, or being known. And, 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 and so for you, every decision is going to be how many likes and clicks can you get, right? And so we all have a treasure, and that treasure determines the decisions that we make. Now watch what Jesus says next. In verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? That seems like a weird thing for him to just throw in there. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving us a little bit of a metaphor. It's a great metaphor. He's talking about our eyes. What we see tends to be what we want. We see it, we want it, we treasure it, we, it consumes us. We think that this thing will satisfy, it fills us. It's like the rings of power in the Lord of Rings. And by the way, if you're not watching the rings of power on Amazon Prime, you're missing out if you want to fight me. Some, you know, hardcore Tolkien fans say it's not great. It is great. I'm watching it right now. It's awesome. So, but it's like the rings of power in, in Lord of the Rings. It's like your greatest precious and your treasure that you'll do anything to have and to keep. And then Jesus gives us the oh so obvious when you see it punchline. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters since either he will hate one and love the other or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. If this jar of atomic fireballs is my treasure, then that means this jar of atomic fireballs is my master because your treasure becomes your master. Because your treasure tells you what decisions to make. Your treasure begins to dictate your anxiety levels. Now this word in Greek that is translated money here, it it can be translated as wealth or possessions. It basically just means our stuff. Doesn't matter how much stuff, it's just our stuff. Now remember, what is Jesus doing? 
He's painting a picture of what his kingdom will one, be, one day be like, and he's inviting us to live in that kingdom so that we can be a glimmer of hope to people in our society. So what is he doing? He is presenting a lordship issue. And the question Jesus is asking is, who's your master? Who's your boss? And then Jesus drops that bomb where he says, you only get one. And you may think you have a lot of priorities, a lot of bosses, a lot of masters, but the question is, when it comes to a priority fight, who wins? Whoever wins in a priority fight, whoever constantly wins in a decision-making fight, that's who your actual master is. And what Jesus is saying is, choose God or choose money to be the decision-making engine of your life. You can only have one. And this is so profound, isn't it? Because our money and our possessions exercise so much power over us. It distorts who we are. It it changes our decision-making. And in my experience, no one thinks they struggle with this teaching. Not really. I mean, I've never had anybody come to me and say, would you help me? I'm really struggling with how much I love my money and my stuff. I've never had someone email me for a counseling session where they're like, you know what? I have to talk about my greed. Why? Because we tend to think that people who struggle with those things are the people who have more of those things than we do. (laughs) And it's interesting that the next word out of Jesus' mouth is, therefore. In other words, he's about to keep this thought going. He's going to expand on this teaching. He's going to give us a little bit more. Therefore, he's building on it. Therefore, I tell you, he says, don't worry about your life, what you'll eat, what you'll drink, or about your body, about what you'll wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And and why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, won't he much more do so for you, you of little faith? So what Jesus does is he takes this idea that you can only serve one master, that money makes a really bad master, and then he gives you four rhetorical questions to ask yourself that help illustrate his point. And I'm going to summarize those here. The first is, isn't the life more than stuff? Now, we all kind of know that. And that's why it's a rhetorical question. Jesus is like, isn't life more than stuff? Remember, he's building on this idea that money and possessions make a bad master, and he's showing us how. See, what happens is we tend to think teachings like this, things about loving money, serving money, things like that, we naturally think what Jesus is talking about is our surplus, right? The the, the pocket change, the, the spending money, that once we've paid our bills, the everything that's left pile, but then Jesus pivots hard, doesn't he? Because what he does is he gives us two examples. Are you worried about what meal you're going to get today? Are you asking yourself the question, am I going to get a drink of water today? What Jesus is doing is he's not talking about our surplus. He's talking about even our bare essentials. 
And Jesus says, don't worry about those. And if Jesus doesn't want you to worry or be anxious about your, where your next meal is coming from or, or if you don't have a glass of water to drink, how much more is he saying that to those of us who have those things already? He said, don't worry about it, right? Most people that I know, and my, I would wager a bet that most of us are not worried about the basics. We're gonna have a, a meal today. Most of us are gonna have a drink today. Most of us are gonna have shelter. Most of us had clothes when we got up this morning. So we're not asking the question about our needs. We're often worried about and anxious about our wants. It's not, will I have dinner tonight? It's, will I have the kind of dinner I want tonight? It's not, will I have shelter? It's, will I have the house that I dream of? It's not, will I have a job? It's, will I have a job that satisfies me and makes me feel good? And Jesus says, isn't life more than that? Isn't life more than what you eat and what you drink and, and where you live and what you wear and what your job is? Isn't life more than that? And when Jesus says, don't worry, he says it different than we would. See, a lot of times when we say, don't worry, we, we, we say it in an encouraging tone. We're like, don't worry. You're okay, right? Jesus says it as a command. He's like, don't. Don't worry. Do not be anxious. And he gives the reason why. In the second rhetorical question, he's like, aren't you more valuable than a bird or a flower? And I know there's people in our society today that would say, no, we're not. We as humans are not more than a bird or a flower. But that's not right in God's economy. In his economy, humankind is greater than a bird, is greater than a flower. And I love this whole chunk because what does he say? It's, it's so brilliant. He's like, birds are fed by being birds. Birds do bird stuff and then they're fine. Flowers look as beautiful or more beautiful than King Solomon by being flowers. Flowers do flower stuff and they're pretty and they have clothes. And then he pivots to you. What about you? Well, when you do what you're created for, you're taken care of. What were you created for? Worship. Every one of us was created to worship. We worship something. We know what we worship because it's the thing that gives us anxiety. It's the thing that causes us worry. It's the thing that we treasure. It is what our master is. We all worship something. Whether you even believe in God or not, you worship something. You're created to worship. And he, basically what he's saying here is when you worship God, when you trust him, when you reflect his image in the society, when you do what's created to do, don't you trust that God is going to take care of you? This is one of the primary reasons our worries tend to show what we treasure. When we worry, we are saying that our treasure, our God, the thing at the center of our life is not going to take care of us. It's not going to give us what we need. And then we freak out. <laughs> it's a guy named John Newton. He's a guy who wrote Amazing Grace. He was also a preacher and a hymn writer. I'm only one of those. Um, and this is what he said. He said, we are prone to fix our attention upon the second causes and immediate instruments of events, forgetting that whatever befalls us is according to his purpose. And therefore must be right 
and seasonable in itself and shall be in the issue, be productive of good. How happy are they who can resign all to him, see his hand in every dispensation and believe that he chooses better for them than they possibly could for themselves. Have you ever heard someone say, I went to Horrocks and God gave me this amazing parking spot right out front. Like, right, like you're like, God must love me. Because when I pulled in, there it was. I mean, full parking lot, but there's an open spot right in front. I feel so loved, right? But have you ever heard anybody say, I went to Horrocks this week, not that this is a true story or not, and they were repaving the whole front parking lot. And the problem was I had to get something from the front of the store, but I had to park in the back with everybody else. And all the people that were normally in the front parking spot and the back parking lot were all in the back parking lot. And they're all circling around. There's no spots. And eventually I had to park all the way in the back. And then I had to walk through the parking lot, walk through the store to the front of the store where I would have liked to have parked and to get the things that I wanted and then go all the way back through and throw my, show my receipts. I'm going through the whole place and go back out to my car all the way in the back. And man, do I feel loved because God gave me that. You ever hear anyone say that? No. You know why? Because we only think of things that give us comfort and joy as gifts from God. We think that everything that God gives must be something that we really, really want. And we don't trust him that he has taken care of us. So we worry and we fret and we're anxious And then Jesus says, not only is it ridiculous, it's utterly unproductive. And that's his fourth rhetorical question. He said, when has worrying ever added a single hour to your life? In fact, he says single moment in the translation. And that's the reality check. Because I would argue that not only does worrying not add any time to your life, it takes time away. You lay awake at night, worried about something, staring at the ceiling, there's an hour you just lost. You come home, and instead of being proactive, you sulk. There's another hour. Instead of enjoying your family or your friends, you're constantly on edge, that's another hour. Instead of getting things done that you need to get done, you disconnect because you're worried. It doesn't add anything to you. Worry subtracts. So if we're not supposed to worry, what do we do? Well, Jesus tells us. He says, so don't worry. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided to you. Provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. That deserves an amen, right? Right? Now, why did Jesus in the middle just mention Gentiles? It was really weird, right? So, and by the way, if you're not new to this Jesus thing, a Gentile is a non-Jewish person, okay? So basically what he's saying is he's like, he's like even the Gentiles know uh, that they need food and drink and, and clothing and housing and all. They even know that God, God knows you need it, right? Why does he mention Gentiles? Well, remember, this whole passage is about Jesus presenting the kingdom, right, to the Israelites to see if they're going to take this and then they ultimately reject the kingdom, they reject him. And basically he's presenting to them something that they should know. Because if you roll back the tape into the Old Testament, they know how they should be right to, with, with their money and possessions when it relates to God. 
and yet they had somehow made it their master, even while they thought they had that area all figured out. See, if you go to the Old Testament, there's something there called the tithe. Tithe means 10. It means 10%. And you'll probably have heard, if you've been around church circles, people mention tithes. Tithe means 10%. There wasn't one of those in the Old Testament. There were three. So anybody who says that they want to be under the tithe, good luck, there's three of them. There's 10%, and then there's 10%, and then every three years there was 10%. It worked out to 23.3% of every Israelite's income was going to go directly to God first. And it was to take care of their faith community. It, was, um, it, it would take care of the temple and the tabernacle and the priest and the poor in their community. And then it would help the poor outside of their community. And the principle was that they were to take care of people. In fact, you were even supposed to take care of your family if your man, family made stupid decisions. It's actually in the law. It says if your family goes into debt and can't get out of debt because they made a stupid decision, you were required under the law to get them out of that debt, right? And all of this was on top of what they were already giving, their 23.3% that they were giving. And not only that, the principle was the more you have, the more you gave. Where do I get that? Well, field owners, when they were harvesting, were not allowed to harvest the outside edges of their fields. They had to leave them there so that what? The poor could go through and harvest behind them. When they were harvesting their grapes, if they dropped grapes on the ground, they had to leave them on the ground so that the poor could come along behind them and pick up the grapes. The idea was those who had more not only gave their 23.3%, didn't only take care of their family, but they also left some extra, the surplus behind. They went above and beyond. They rounded up. And all of this happened before they spent another dime. It's what the Bible calls first fruits. The idea of trusting God that he is your master first by giving first. Trusting that the first 23.3% of the harvest that came in was given to God trusting that the rest of it, the 76.7, is that right? Yeah, percent would come, I should have written it down, um, would come in later. So I think that the way we talk about giving as Christians, and we fail at this here at RIV, we kind of actually goof this up. Because we talk about giving and generosity, which we are giving and we are being generous, but the Bible talks about bringing. The idea that the Israelites here would bring their offerings to God because it belonged to him. They were bringing him what he already owned. The idea of first fruits is the idea that God does not do seconds. So they would bring him first, showing that he was the master of their lives. They would bring food to their community because that's what someone did. You took care of people who were in need. It was about bringing, not giving. That we are never the giver. The giver is God. We are the conduit through which he gives to those who are in need. And when we do that, we declare who the master of our lives is. And our offering is a glimmer of our giving to the world. Now, I want to stop for a second. Because some of you, I know, are really struggling financially. When we go through this and we talk about this stuff, we talk about this, your anxiety level is like here. Here's what I want you to know. God sees you. He's not anxious. He sees your needs. He's not freaking out. He's asking you to trust him. And why does that matter so much? 
Well, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says it this way. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, (laughs) we should be pitied more than anyone. If this life is all there is, we're pathetic. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What is this saying? As Christians, we are a people who hope in something that is beyond this life. Our hope is in Jesus who rose from the dead and ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He was brought back to the Father as the first fruits. And you know what the rest of the offering is? It's us. We are the rest of that offering. In fact, in Ephesians, we're told that we are Jesus's inheritance that he takes and he brings to God the Father. We are that. And so when we are to reorient our lives where we are giving to God first, where we are bringing our first fruits to him in how we posture our lives, we are preaching a little gospel message. For those of us who have hoped in Jesus above all earthly things, we know that we will one day rise and be with him eternally where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. So how does this affect us today? Well, as New Testament followers of Jesus, here's the deal. There's no mandated percentage of giving in your life. We're not under the law. We're not under the 23.3%. You're not under any kind of 10%. We don't have to leave the edges of our fields empty. We don't have to, every time we drop a grape in the, in the kitchen, we're like, oh crap, I can't pick it up. And the two-year-old has to eat it, right? We're just like, we don't have to do any of those things. But that doesn't mean our relationship with our money and possessions is any different. What is Jesus doing? He's giving a picture of what his kingdom will be like and he's inviting us into that. As Christians, we're called to the same principles. We take care of the local church. We take care of those in need in our church community and those in our community around us. We give to help the poor, those who are in need. We help the gospel to expand beyond our walls. And the expectation, just like the Old Testament, is those with more give more. And I know what you're thinking. Whew! Because we always think that the person who is rich is the person who is just slightly richer than we are, right? That's where the line is. We all tend to think we're above average in intelligence and driving skills and below average on wealth, right? That's just how we work. But here's what I know. At Riverview, most of us, not all of us, most of us are not trying to figure out where our next meal is coming from. Some of us are. Most of us have running water. Most of us have enough to drink. Most of us have clothes on our backs. Most of us have shelter. We're not anxious about our needs. We're anxious about our wants. We live in the most affluent country in the history of the world, making more money than the rest of the world. We're not worried about living in a box tonight, but we're still really anxious. Why is that? Because for many of us, our stuff has become our master. It's our treasure. For others of us, we're worried. We are worried. We're worried about paying for our kids' college education. We're worried about retirement. We're worried about fun stuff we want to do. (laughs) How do we deal with that anxiety? We remember Jesus' four rhetorical questions. (laughs) Isn't life more than stuff? 
aren't you more valuable than a bird or a flower? Don't you trust God that he's going to take care of you? And when has your worrying ever added a single hour to your life? And once we've wrestled with these questions, then what do we do? We seek first Jesus and his kingdom and his righteousness with every area of our lives, including whatever that treasure is in your life that has taken the place that he deserves. Maybe your family, maybe your career, maybe fame, maybe money and possessions. We change our perspective from what is here on earth to what is coming. We hope in something different, a person, Jesus, who is the righteousness of God, who is the, the, the entrance to the kingdom of God and the rest of the stuff around us. It's all gonna melt away. Hunger and thirst and clothing are real issues, but they're temporary. And Jesus is eternal. Here's what I know. Again and again and again, we will be faced with anxiety, no matter how much money you have. Why? Because every one of us, including me, has a lordship battle going on in our lives. And I would think in our American society, this idea of Jesus versus money is probably bigger than has ever been in any other historical context. We have this lordship battle in our lives. They say that you can tell who is somebody's master by looking at their calendar and their bank account. And maybe that's worth looking at at some point this week. What does yours say about you? Here's what Jesus' final word is. I love this in this passage. He says, therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. <laughs> and I don't know what is keeping you awake at night. I don't know what the future holds, but this is what I know. What we treasure determines our decision-making and our anxiety. Lifting our eyes to Jesus changes what we treasure, so it changes our decision-making and our anxiety. And here's the deal. If an atomic fireball will help you with your anxiety, or if you just want one, and you're at the whole venue today, sorry to the other venues are online, just find me after the service and I'll give you one. I've got pockets full of them. So like, seriously, come find me. I'm putting them in my pockets now so you know I didn't have these in here for like three weeks and they're all grody, right? So I'm gonna fill my pockets. If you want to, I'd love to give you a fireball after the service, especially if it hang, helps with your anxiety. Oh, well, guess I gotta leave that one there. Uh, so we'll just leave it behind for the poor band members to eat. So... Let, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, um, we thank you for Jesus who is the first fruits. And we thank you that we are the rest of that offering. It's just absolutely amazing that you would consider us your treasure. <laughs> and so we just pray that we would live as a glimmer of that in our culture today. We just pray that what we would treasure would be you and your kingdom and your righteousness, that we would lift our eyes to Jesus and that you would just change us from the inside out. Help us to change our decision-making and our anxiety around your priorities. And we pray this all in Jesus's precious name, amen.